um, you would you would affirm that if you were to take the time and to just honestly unpack uh, and observe your own life, right? We we felt that we see that um, we see it in us, we see it around us. So we're going to talk about where we see um, sins compounding nature in Genesis 34 as we work our way through 33. Does that make sense? So I'm pulling the old switcherooski on you guys is what's happening. Like we're also doing Genesis 34 today, uh, but mainly as a point of observation to just how quickly things get out of control. And so um, where are we, man, as we lean into this story of reconciliation and redemption? Again, the story that's just full of surprises. In Genesis 32, uh, we see God's interacting with Jacob in a way that sets the stage for his interaction with Esau. Okay, And so if you weren't here with us last week and you haven't caught up on the podcast, I would encourage you to, if nothing else, go back later this afternoon and reread Genesis 32, because in what we observe in Genesis 32, we see God setting the stage by way of his interaction with Jacob for Jacob's interaction with Esau that we're going to read about this morning in chapter 33. Does that make sense? I just said a lot of things. Let me boil it down. Go back and reread Genesis 32 if you haven't. The sequence of these events cannot be overstated. Okay, God is teaching something really beautiful and really incredible uh, through Genesis 32 and 33. God is teaching us that reconciliation with others must be preceded by reconciliation with him. So what does that mean? What does it mean to say that reconciliation with others must be preceded by reconciliation with God? It means that we must see this connection in terms of broken fellowship with God redeemed or brought back together in order for true reconciliation with others to be realized. Right? It must be. You think about the relationships that you have in your own life, and you would perhaps go, I mean, these are broken relationships. You probably have those, right? In order for those to be reconciled, which we saw last week, this natural reaction in light of God's redemptive work in us, pursuing after reconciled relationship, if we want to see that happen, we must first experience reconciliation with God. Without that, brokenness will persist. If you're here this morning and you're going, man, I got a list of broken relationships as long as my leg. Know this, that those will not be reconciled apart from reconciliation with God. Does that make sense? Like you've got to begin there, right? Um, in fact, a, a way that, that helps us to, to, to think through this um, is, is horizontal and vertical relationship, right? Horizontal relationship being the way that we relate with one another around us, the way that you and I in this room relate with one another, the way we relate with our teammates and our friends at school and our coworkers and our bosses, right? The way that we relate with one another must be informed by the way that we relate with God, right? We first consider reconciled relationship vertically, the fact that the Father has brought us into fellowship with himself through the sacrifice of Jesus, now that we have realized this, we are on a right trajectory to see broken relationships here, like, mended and healed. Does that make sense? Right? Vertical and, and horizontal. That's kind of what we're, we're talking about here. We learn, in addition, through the order of Genesis 32... Right, what we saw last week in Genesis 33, what we see this week, that restored relationship with God must result in an attempt at restoration with others. 
Right? Well, it was the byproduct of, of what we observed in Genesis 32, this realization from Jacob that the Lord is indeed faithful, right? that he brings us into intimacy and fellowship with him, that he makes us his friends right? through faith. And in response to this, the transformed heart that has now been made new by the Lord, we desire reconciliation with other people. So if you're here to sit here again this morning, now we're, we're, it feels like we're just re-preaching Genesis 32, which like, like I'm okay with that. Like if that's where we are, let's just all be okay with it, right? Uh, if, we, if we're sitting here and we are going, man, I've experienced the benefits of, of reconciliation with God through the sacrifice of Jesus, we then must say, what does it look like for me to see reconciliation in terms of horizontal relationship realized? That is the byproduct. That is what happens, right? We experience this transformation of heart, and as a result, to the glory of God, we desire to see broken relationships around us healed. Does that make sense? Are you guys with me? So what does that look like? Last week we talked about how that may require us to, in this moment, step to the back of the room or outside or across the room and go, hey, like we have had beef and this is not okay, right? This is in need of being fixed. And so I am practicing immediate action in order to see that realized. Does that make sense? We're, we're all together so far. We're still in Genesis 32, but we're, we're working our way there. So let's consider how the gospel informs this, right? In the same way that, that restored relationship with God results in an attempt at restoration with others. Notice I said attempt there, right? It means that we pursue after it. Does it mean that the other will receive it? No, but you know what? That's not up to you. <laughs> right? Like there's an attempt at restored relationship that takes place. Similarly, the gospel says that Jesus's interaction with us sets the stage for our interaction with the Father. Jesus's interaction with us sets the stage for our interaction with the Father. In the same way that we observe God's interaction with Jacob setting the stage for his interaction with Esau, we can see the same thing in light of the gospel. What have we seen take place over the course of the last few chapters? Jacob the deceiver, the heel grabber, is given a new name. Right? He's a, a new man. In fact, he's a new man who is identified by a mark of grace. You remember this last week, this wrestling match, this physical altercation between God and Jacob that resulted in this display of divine strength from God upon Jacob that left him what? Dragging a leg, right? Limping. Jacob is a, is a new man identified by a mark of grace, a new and labored walk that would act as a reminder of God's strength. A reminder that God fights for his people, for our good and our affections. Again, consider the way that the gospel informs this. We're not talking about the way the world understands labored and limping around, but we're considering what God has to say about what this looks like and this call into the reliance of his strength and sufficiency. In Genesis 32, we see a challenging of the way that we understand this all working out. Again, the, the gospel makes it possible for you and I to identify with Jacob in our need as well as this new identity. 
sinners in Christ transformed into sons and daughters. Sinners in Christ transformed into children of God. It's an incredible work. Right? It's, a, it's a costly work evidenced by the cross. And one that oftentimes results in difficulty. I came across a quote by A.W. Tozer this past week that's, um, man, it's so incredible. Listen to what Tozer has to say. If you're not familiar with Tozer, check out Tozer. Tozer's incredible, and this is incredible, and now we're enjoying it together. Listen to what he has to say. He says, God isn't going to take us off to heaven wrapped in cellophane, looking as though we ought to be hanging on a Christmas tree. Instead, God will take us there after he has made us strong. How does he do that? Well, bringing us into this realization of our own weakness. That's what Jacob is experiencing in Genesis 32. Man, I am weak, and the only way that I'm walking into the land that you've given is by your strength, right? This labored walk serves as as evidence of that. He's only going to take us there after he's, he's dragged us through fire and taught us that faith and feeling are not the same thing. How's Jacob feeling going into Genesis 33? Well, we're going to talk a little bit more about it in a few minutes. But, but he is certainly feeling the physical effects of the previous night. He's not feeling great. But what do we know about his faith? I mean, his faith is being strengthened, right? The Lord has displayed his covenant commitment and his work in Jacob's life to where he says, I don't feel great, but man, my faith, or my faith is in a, is in a really is in a really solid, really solid place. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to, as we come into Genesis 33, we've set the stage. We know this is a surprising story. Like there's just a series of transitions that take place and we go, wow, that was surprising. Okay, wow, that was surprising again. Oh, wow, that was surprising. It's a story of surprises. I want us to begin in the first two verses by observing Jacob's sorrow over his sin. That's where we're going first. Verses 1 and 2 of Genesis 33, the sorrow of Jacob over his sin. Anticipation has been building for you and I over the past few weeks as we are awaiting Jacob's uh, final moments of, of, of confrontation with Esau, right? Them being brought together face to face. For Jacob, this has been a 20-year process. For you and I, it's been three weeks, but yet the eagerness has continued to build. What's it going to look like? Let's look at verse 1. <clears throat> Moses writes this, And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. Right? What Jacob had, had heard about is now being made sight. What does it look like for 400 men and a really ticked off older brother to be walking towards you as you venture back into the promised land? Jacob's now seeing what that looks like. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front and Leah with her children and Rachel, Joseph, last of all. Jacob is stressing out and strategizing. And when we consider where Jacob has been, begins to make a bit more sense. We see that Jacob is concerned about his meeting with Esau. 
This is further displayed in verse 3. Look with me at verse 3. We see Jacob's posture being displayed, right? His his internal feelings are being displayed externally by way of his his physical action. Verse 3, he himself went before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Posture is everything in this scene with Jacob and Esau. We see that that Jacob, as he approaches Esau seven times, bows himself to the ground. Now, what does that look like? It likely looks like this, that that Jacob is, is laying himself prostate on the ground, right? That he is laying out on the ground as he works his way toward Esau, and perhaps Esau works his way towards Jacob. They're they're coming together, right? And as Jacob walks seven times, he takes this certain posture in which he perhaps drops to his knees and then from his knees to his chest, and we're seeing the very first burpee realized right here in Genesis 33, right? Like he's laying himself out. He is laying himself flat. He is spread. He is is vulnerable. He is displaying something really beautiful and really incredible. In fact, despite it being something really beautiful and really incredible, it is the inverse of everything that we might expect. This is the first place that we find a surprise in Genesis 33. Well, how so? Why why is that surprising? Well, because we remember that we're not reading Genesis 33 in isolation, but we're reading it in light of this much grander story that's being unfolded. In Genesis 27, so I'm taking us back, taking us way back, taking us 20 years back, okay, as we come to Genesis 27. In Genesis 27, following Jacob's deception of Isaac, he becomes the recipient of his father's blessing. Genesis 27, verse 28 and 29. Let peoples serve you, Jacob's father says to him as he blesses him. And nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers. And may your mother's sons, here it is, bow down to you. Well, wait a second. Like what we're seeing in Genesis 33 is not what we hear about in Genesis 27. Here in Genesis 33, we find Jacob seven times laid out before Esau, taking a position that is reverse of the blessing that he receives through deception 20 years prior. A position that illustrates a clear understanding of sin. Externally, the the same position adopted by Joseph's brothers in Genesis 42. So we pointed backwards. Now I'm pointing ahead. In Genesis 42, we see Joseph's brothers who had sold him into slavery years prior, driven into Egypt by, by famine, laying themselves before the man that they knew as the governor over the whole land. We see in Genesis 42 the authority of Joseph driving his brothers low. Externally, we're seeing the same thing displayed by Jacob here. Internally, we are witnessing from Jacob a gospel-informed, grace-informed response to sin. 
Did you get that? Gospel-informed, grace-informed response to sin. Jacob is driven low. But what is it that drives Jacob low? In Genesis 42, it's Joseph's brothers before the man that they understand to be the governor, right, over the whole land. They are in need, and this is a man of great stature, and therefore they lay themselves before, desiring mercy and compassion, desiring generosity. Here, Jacob is driven low by the weight of his understanding and of his actions against God. His sin against the Lord and his sin against Esau coupled with his comprehension of God's kindness. We know that these things always work together, right? They have to. It's not simply our understanding of sin that drives us to our knees. It's not simply Jacob's understanding of sin that has driven him to his knees, but his sin in light of the kind and compassionate character of God. Having wrestled with God, having experienced his persistence to Jacob's transformation, he can now see his sin more clearly. He is now able to call it through his actions here exactly what it is. What is sin? Well, if you're unfamiliar, let us acquaint ourselves. Sin is damaging. Sin is, sin is damaging and it is destructive. Have you experienced this in your own life? Of course you have, right? It would not be uncommon for many of us in this room to currently, right, be dealing with the consequences of sinful behavior and actions and decisions that we made in our past. We know that sin is damaging. We know that it is destructive. We know that it's a rejection of God's good design for creation. Jacob has seen this, right? Are we together? Jacob has has seen this and has become consequently low, (laughs) right? He's, He's brought low. And so we consider again how these stories connect, how what we see here in Genesis 33 connects with what we are experiencing here in 2019. Like Jacob, we must encounter God. We must encounter God. We must see God. We must come to know who God is. This is where we find ourselves driven to Jesus who makes himself low. Position and a posture of of no reputation. Observable through his incarnation. As Christ Jesus surrenders certain divine rights that he possesses as God so that he could live and love the law, so that he could die a sinner's death on the cross before resurrecting back to life, ascending to the Father, and sending God the Spirit to convict and to save. As we look to Jesus, we see the Father. Jesus himself says this, as we see the Father, we see our sin. And as we see our sin alongside the holiness of God, we are broken. What does this look like? We get a great picture in Acts chapter 2. Gosh, the book of Acts. Somebody I was talking to is reading through the book of Acts. Who's reading through the book of Acts? 
Somebody is. Jacqueline is. I thought there was another person. Yeah, okay. You are together, right? So awesome. Way to go. Way to go. All right, there's somebody else, too, that I'm thinking of that's also reading through um, that's reading through the book of Acts. And the first few chapters of the book of Acts, this beautiful picture of gospel proclamation and a people being brought to this realization of their brokenness, of their sin, of their depravity, of their need. This mass of humanity. Confronted, right? being brought into this understanding of their need for forgiveness by the gospel, cut to the heart and crying out, what do we do to be saved? To which Peter responds, repent and believe. Repent and believe. Our King, Jesus, who is a friend of sinners, crushed so that we could stand in Him, before the Father. Here in Genesis 33, we see Jacob brought low in a scene that we should be familiar with, in a scene that we should be intimately acquainted with, a posture that we are comfortable with, but not one that we are left in. What we see from Jacob here, we are familiar with that. Why? Well, because we are made to know the kindness of God, which Paul says in his letter to the Romans, leads us unto repentance. We realize our brokenness and we cast ourselves before the Lord. We're familiar with the posture of Jacob as we see it in these first few verses. We're brought to this position. We're comfortable in this position, but we are not left in this position. We must see how the cross reconciles sinners to God and respond out of this. Paul David Tripp says it like this, because Jesus has purchased your acceptance with God. Notice what Paul says there, right? Paul Tripp, not the apostle, (laughs) right? He doesn't say because you have like made yourself acceptable before God. No, he says because Jesus has purchased your acceptance with God, you can now run to him. We identify with the position of Jacob here in these first few verses of Genesis 33. And at the same time, we go, man, because of who Jesus is and what he has done for us, man, we can run to him. We don't have to be afraid or terrified of his response or rejection. Why? Well, because because the life and and death of Jesus is, is beautiful and acceptable to the Father. So that sinners, you and I in need, can cast ourselves upon his finished work in faith. Right? We can say, all of Jesus, none of me, and we can run to the Father. We identify with Jacob's position here, and at the same time we go, man, but we are not left in Jacob's position here. We're not left on the ground. Right? But in a, in a similar scene as, as, as Jesus transfigured before his disciples on the mountain, we see the holiness of God, and we are brought to our knees, and Jesus, our friend and our king, says, stand up, right? Stand up. It's a beautiful picture of what our relationship with God looks like. A sorrow over our sin before God, who is so kind and so generous and so holy, drives us low. It's a work of the Spirit in order to heal us. 
in order to make us new, to give us new hearts that desire fellowship with God and obedience to his instruction. This is a work of the Spirit that in our realization of sin, sorrow might give way to celebration. Did you catch that? (laughs) Right? That sorrow might give way to celebration. We see in these first few verses, Jacob's sorrow over his sin, followed by, next surprise, Esau's surprise reaction. Look with me here at uh, verse 4. Esau ran to meet him. And embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. It's this powerful scene of of a brotherly relationship that was incomprehensibly broken being restored. Think about those relationships in your life that you would say here, right? That they are so broken that they are beyond restoration. As broken as those relationships are, right? And I don't want to paint anybody into the corner here, but there's a high probability that you never plotted to kill the other person. But that's exactly what we observe between Esau and Jacob earlier on. Esau plotting the death of his brother. We have this climactic moment that reminds us of the story of the prodigal son. Jacob is driven low and he displays his sorrow over his sin against the Lord and against his brother. And in response, Esau runs to meet him. I like to imagine this as like a like a like almost a violent embrace, right? Like this this kind of like full speed like meeting. Right? Like to where it's just, they're running, right? Esau is running and he doesn't slow down, but he just, I mean, he finishes the tackle, right? I mean, he just runs through Jacob. Fell on his neck. Right? As though he's, he's just like his legs gave out, right? It's just a really beautiful and, and powerful moment. Emotion is is brought out through the reconciliation that we observe here between these two brothers. Like Moses is intentional in the language that he uses here to bring that to the surface. Reconciliation is an emotional experience, right? Which we see here, it's not kind of like, hey man, like been a long time, like don't want to kill you anymore, want to chill. Like it's not that. It's this emotional moment. It's this, it's this powerful scene. They, they hug and, and he kisses his brother and they wept. They weep together. They're both weeping. Listen to what Kent Hughes has to say about this, this encounter, right? this, this experience and this, what we're looking into here as these brothers come back together. He says this. He says, whatever his intentions had been, we're, we're looking from Esau's perspective here. Whatever his intentions had been up until that moment, and we don't have a ton of insight as to what that is. Maybe Esau like rolled up and he was still like, oh yeah, we're going to fight still. Like this is still going to go down. I have not forgotten. And now like you're back. Here I am. Like we're about to like roll. 
<laughs> right? Like we're going to tussle a bit, right? Maybe, maybe that's what it is. We don't know. We don't have a ton of insight. We don't know what his intentions have been up until this point. What we do know is this. That the sight of Jacob made his natural affections take charge. This is my brother. Right? And he's, he's back. He makes no mention of the past. Why? And because it doesn't matter. <laughs> right? He doesn't bring it up because it doesn't matter. Why? Why doesn't it? Why doesn't it matter? Perhaps there's a a greater realization of the beauty of life. Right? All these years later, it seems more valuable to Esau with the passing of time. Whereas he was really quick to plot his brother's murder. Years have passed. And with these years, perhaps some new perspective, right? A level of maturity that had been previously lacking. Before, I'm going to take you out. Now, something, something different. And I think there's much more going on here, which we'll talk about in just, a, in just a moment, in light of a prayer of Jacob that we observed earlier on. But, but certainly, we're at least there. Ray Orland, who is the uh, former pastor now of Emmanuel Church in Nashville, says this. He says, we are vapors, quickly fading away, and soon quite forgotten. This reality isn't an evil conspiracy. Mortality is sad, but our short lives are a good gift from above, crowded with daily gifts of grace from God's kind heart. Jacob and Esau are benefiting from this, (laughs) okay? Like they're benefiting from it. They're they're experiencing it, the grace of the Lord and and this new perspective that he has has birthed in them. And so, as a result, Esau runs. He says nothing about the beef that existed years prior. Why? Well, because his hug and his kiss now say it all. What a beautiful picture that reminds us of God's covenant-keeping love for sinners. In Genesis 32, verse 11, let's turn there. Let's turn to Genesis 32, 11. Look here with me. In Genesis 32, 11, Jacob asks the Lord to deliver him from Esau's hand. Verse 11. Let's pick up in, uh, in verse 9, actually. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac. Remember, this is prior to their meeting. This is prior to their wrestling. O Lord, who says to me, return to your country and your kindred. Remember, the Lord calls Jacob back that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed the Jordan. Now I've become two camps. Verse 11. There's this realization of tension that exists within this family. And this this picture of Jacob's understanding of his reliance on the Lord to make anything other than a fist fight take place. 
Verse 11. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother and from the hand uh, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me. The mothers with the children. In Genesis 32:11, Jacob asked the Lord to deliver him from Esau's hand. The danger is evident. Right, and Esau's reaction to Jacob, if it were a negative one, would have been, from Jacob's perspective, justified. This is why he responds the way that he does in verses 1 through 3. Right? He, he lays himself out before. He's displaying this, this apologetic posture before Esau. Why? Well, because he understands, like, you may want to like, physically do me harm. And my family harm. And as a result, I'm, I'm laying myself down. I'm displaying a humble and sorrowful heart by way of my physical posture. In verses 4 through 11, we see God's response to Jacob's prayer. Does Esau want to fight? No. Right? He doesn't want to fight. In fact, we see this powerful embrace becomes evident by way of Esau's response that the Lord has changed his heart. Again, we're talking a lot over the previous few weeks about the need for reconciliation and restoration. And I'm not immune right, to, to this idea or perspective that there might be those in this room who are in need of their own hearts being transformed towards an individual in order to pursue after this type of new relationship. Restored relationship, right relationship, God-glorifying relationship. Let us not miss the forest through the trees here. Right, this is all about God glorifying himself and humanity existing in this relationship in which they were intended to exist. This type of hostility between brothers is not a part of God's design or, or desire in creation. It is an after effect of the fall. It is a consequence of sin. Your broken relationships are a consequence of sin in the world, in you, in others. There's tension and there's conflict, right? Right? There's this, this display through Esau's response to Jacob that says that there has been this work of the Lord in the heart of Esau that is nothing else like softened his, his feelings towards his brother in, to the point that he doesn't want to kill him anymore, right? which is always positive, right? It's always a positive place to be. I wanted to kill him and now I don't. Thank goodness the Lord softened my heart because that would have been tragic and bad for all parties involved. The Lord changes the heart of Esau. We're in need of our hearts being transformed. We hold grudges, bad, all of us, like you know, like middle school girls that just refuse to let it go. Right? Like, like nobody holds a grudge like a middle school girl, y'all. Like, I know it's true, okay? Like, I know it's a thing. We think that dies out, but it doesn't. Like, we just become better at hiding it, right? Or whatever that kind of, like, looks like. We don't have geometry with them anymore, and so that helps. There's this need for a, a transformed heart. We, we see our brokenness, we see our sin, we see our need, and we go, Lord, like, remove this from me, cut me open, and wear me out. 
Less of me, more of you. Glorify yourself. All of this serves to accomplish that end. It glorifies God. Everything that has taken place in the life of Jacob glorifies God. Joseph glorifies God and Jacob. When we get to Genesis 42, we'll talk about that. And Esau, everything that has taken place serves to glorify the Lord. This scene serves to glorify the Lord. This emotional roller coaster that we are on as we say, man, a family is brought back together. We see Esau, Uncle Esau. Right? He's like, who is all, who are all these children? Like, come around, children. Right? They're all bowing down. Everybody's bowing down on multiple occasions. Four times. Four times we see they're bowing down. Verse 6. Then the servants drew near, and, and their children, they bowed down. Leah likewise, and her children drew near, and they bowed down. Last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and, and they bowed down again. Man, J- Joseph, Jacob's still bowing down. Verse 8. What do you mean by all this? All this company that I met, Jacob answered, to find favor in your sight, my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. We remember that Jacob sent all of these things before uh, to to Esau in an attempt to, to perhaps sway his position. If he did want to fight, maybe as I seek to make recompense here, he will no longer want to fight. Here's lots of gifts. How are we feeling? Still upset? Here's some more gifts. How are we feeling? Still upset? Here's some more gifts. Are we softening? No longer want to kill me? I hope so. Esau says, what is all this? Keep all your stuff. But Esau, man, he receives the the response from his brother. Verse 10, Jacob said, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. Remember, he spent the previous night wrestling with the Lord. We said in the beginning that the Lord is is setting the stage by way of his interaction with with Jacob for Jacob's interaction with Esau. If we're sitting here this morning and we're going, man, we've got broken relationships in need of being restored. Know this, that our hearts are softened towards individuals as we spend time with the Lord in his word. And we begin to equate the face of the Lord with the Imago Dei around us. Does that make sense? If we're sitting here going, no, can't forgive, no, can't move on, no, incapable of reconciliation, we need to spend time with the Lord. Jacob says here, I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. What happened last night served to set me on a trajectory for this meeting right here to go well. Jacob doesn't display uh, pride or arrogance by way of his approach to Esau, but what does he display? Humility, love, kindness. Regret, a desire for relationship to be restored. And you have accepted me, verse 11. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him. And Esau says, okay, I'll take it. At which point we go, man, this thing has been closed. Case closed. Broken relationship healed. We're surprised by Jacob's response to sin. We are surprised by Esau's response to Jacob. And now, as we transition into this next and final portion, which I'm going to read through really quickly. Hold on with me, okay? Because we're about to go. We are surprised by Jacob's regression. <laughs> okay? We're, at this point, if we stop And really, I want to stop. I want to stop now. I want us to chill here, and I want us to come back next week, and I want us to talk about Jacob's regression. 
But Jacob's regression happens so quickly that we need to acknowledge it because we oftentimes experience the same type of things. Wow, things are going so well. Yay! Followed by this like immediate moment of regression. You're almost like, yes, yes, yes. No! As we come into this next section. Look with me at what goes on here. This is crazy. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, we're going to read what Jacob says, and then we're going to step back and we're going to go, here's what Jacob should have said. This is what Jacob says, and then we're going to look at what Jacob should have said. Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are, are frail, and the nursing flocks and, and herds are cared to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all of the flocks will die. Verse 14, let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant and and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. That's what Jacob says. Esau says, hey, let's go together. We'll like walk together back home. You come with me. This will be great. Jacob's response, like the kids and the flocks are tired. Right? And so you go ahead. And what I'll do is I'll just like, we'll kind of chill out, we'll rest a little bit, and then we'll come along at our own pace. What should Jacob have said? Here's what Jacob should have said. I have no business in Seir. Right? Like the Lord has not called me to Seir. Where has the Lord called Jacob to go? Well, to Bethel, right? This is where Jacob is to go. The Lord has brought him back. He has delivered him and he has brought him back in order to take him to a particular place. Now, man, praise the Lord. Reconciled relationship with Esau. Esau says, this is incredible. Let's hang out more. (laughs) Come with me. To which point Jacob goes, no, I can't. Like, there's a lot going on. That's not true. It's a lie, Right? But he can't go to Seir because he's not supposed to go to Seir. He's supposed to go to Bethel. This is where the Lord has has called him to. And so we see this moment of regression. Why are we going back to this? Well, Jacob goes back for the same reason that we go back. Right? Because we're because we're comfortable, right? And we and we struggle with flesh. Or perhaps there's this feeling as though things are going so well in this moment, why mess it up? Like maybe I'll eventually go on to Seer, so I'll just like say this. As opposed to leaning in to this moment, embracing this opportunity to deflect attention away from from him and even what has taken place here and to point it back towards the Lord. Verse 13, so Esau said, let me leave with, uh, with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth. First we see this, this spiritual regression followed by a physical regression. In all of the ways that spiritually and physically we see Jacob growing in the scenes leading up to this one, we now see him regressing. How do you know that? Well, because he goes the wrong direction. Supposed to go to Bethel. But instead, Jacob journeyed to Succoth, which is actually steps backwards. He's moving backwards as opposed to moving forwards. 
Not only that, but it looks like he's going to hang out for a while. He built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of this place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram. And he camped before the city, verse 19. And from, his son, and from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he, brought, he bought for a hundred pieces of money a piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel, God the God of Israel. Jacob does all the right things in all the wrong places. That has got to be a country song. Hey, there's this regression that we observe. And what we find, remember, here's where we're going to close out. I'm just going to read this, this next section, because it gets worse. In fact, we're just going to, we're going to stop here and we're almost left. Here's where we're left this morning. We're left with this sense of, of need and reliance. We're left going, Lord, why do we do what we do? <laughs> like, Lord, we, you have extended grace and we stand in need of your grace again and again and again and again. We see it in our own lives. We feel it in our own lives and we observe it here as we venture into Genesis chapter 34. Can we read this? What does it look like to regress into sin? And then how quickly does sin spiral out of control? This encourages God's people, man, be on guard. Right? Be on guard. Do not give sin an inch. Do not sacrifice. Because with sacrifice, well, I'm supposed to go here, but I'm just going to back up, right? One little lie, who can it hurt? Man, things spiral downward. For Jacob and his family. Listen to what goes on in verse 30, chapter 34. This is incredible. Are you guys with me? Follow along. Here we go. I think we'll have this on the screen as well. Here we go. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her... Here we go, verse 2. He seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke with his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now all of this, this whole scene that we're about to observe, is a byproduct of Jacob retreating backwards and settling in a place that he has no business settling. Verse 5, now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with the livestock in the field. So Jacob held his pace until they came. Verse 6, and Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard it, and the men were indignant. They were angry, very angry, because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. Verse 8, But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to his to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. 
Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing uh, to, to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised. For that would be a disgrace to us. Verse 15, only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Here's the deal. Here's the condition. We're not playing this thing out until you're circumcised. But we know earlier on that they are not on board with this at all. In fact, there's a very deceitful plan at place here. Verse 16. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter, and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young men did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house, verse 20. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of the city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, how do we feel? Are we okay so far? Verse 21, these men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and Trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives, and let us give them our daughters only on this condition. Will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people, when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised? Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. Verse 25, here we go. Wow, it's about to escalate, like for real. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob... Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever else was in the city, in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones, their, their wives, all that was in the houses, they, camped, they captured and plundered. Verse 30, then Jacob said to, to Simon and Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Pezzasites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? What happened? Wow, that escalated quickly. This decision to encamp in a place that Jacob and his family had no business in camping leads to this story of consequence and Great escalation. This is the way that sin works. Compromise leading to destruction, plundering, and death. 
Why do we read this? Why does Moses include this? Well, because it historically is accurate. It happened, right? And so that, again, God's people might be made ever more aware of our tendencies towards destructive behavior, sinful decisions that serve not to glorify the Lord, but to produce unimaginable consequence. A lot of brokenness and a lot of death. And we're left saying yet again, the world is in this horrible condition. And yet, as we prepare to come to the table, we are reminded that God has this plan to redeem and reconcile even this most broken creation. Here we see slaughter, right, that produces division, even within this family, as Jacob is now upset about the way that all of this has played out. As we observe the table, we're reminded of, of the broken body of Christ, right? And the spilt blood of Christ, right? The slaughter of Christ. That serves not to divide, but because of the hope of the resurrection, to reconcile. Right? That the Lord can take even, even the most difficult of circumstances right? and, and weave them for His glory, His plan and purpose and mission to redeem and reconcile the world. We end with this story of of slaughter, right, as a consequence of of sin that produces division. But as we come to the table, we see, again, this story of of, of slaughter, right, that is caused to be this story of great hope in light of the resurrection that serves to reconcile us with God. Let's think about that as we come to the table. Desiring to kill sin and see reconciliation realized in our lives with other people, perhaps even the Lord, right? Let's pray.